Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. for the first time, um, it was as if George Eliot was a sort of God. And when I finished reading it, I thought, oh, I'm going to be lonely again now. Because while I was reading it, I didn't feel alone. I felt with the characters. I knew what the characters were feeling. I knew that George Eliot knew about them. And there was some sort of community going on there. And I knew that George Eliot would be able, as it were, to explain somebody like me. And as I stopped reading the book, I thought, I'm on my own again now. You can no more draw one more lesson from our books than you can from life itself. You may draw a thousand if you will, but merely to read one of our books in an impressionable mood is to see such a portion of the world with her eyes and to share in the multiform influence exercised by the vision. The words of British writer, trade union activist and feminist Edith Simcox, who was a lifelong friend and admirer of Victorian novelist George Eliot. Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Can great art teach us how to live? Well, on tonight's show, we're going to unpack that question with one of the greatest writers of Victorian literature, the great George Eliot. Think classics such as Middlemarch, The Mill on the Floss, Silas Marner and Adam Bede. Yep, novels of intense emotion, empathy and psychological depth. This evening, I'm joined by writer, literary scholar and teacher Philip Davis, whose latest book, The Transferred Life of George Eliot, has just been published by Oxford University Press, where Philip informs his readers, my primary aim is to understand her life through her work, because it was her work that she transferred and dedicated her life. So what did it mean for George Eliot to be a realist writer? And was George Eliot the greatest philosopher writer of the Victorian era? My name is Philip Davis. I'm a professor of literature at the University of Liverpool, where I also run a research unit called Quills. It's the Centre for Research into Reading, Literature and Society. And all that that means is that we do research into reading groups, shared reading groups, often run by our sister organisation, The Reader, which takes serious literature to hard-to-reach communities, not in those sorts of reading groups where you read everything in advance, but where it's read live and on the spot. I've written uh, recently this book about George Eliot. I've written about the Victorians, uh, a volume, because I'm very interested in that period that brings literature, particularly in relation to the realist novel and ordinary doings. But I've also written on William Shakespeare, uh, Samuel Johnson, William Wordsworth. I've never wanted to be a specialist. I wanted to be a literary middleman between authors and readers trying to transmit the messages or show the importance to me of those books. This is a personal thing. Well, Philip, you're an exemplary middleman and I have to say hats off to you for producing such an interesting and candid biography of the great George Eliot. I might start off with a big wide open question for you, if that's okay. Did George Eliot really 
interrogate truth at every level. And within that, was she working off a kind of a higher consciousness of sorts because she really was able to see, interrogate and analyse the world in so many different ways? Most of her interrogation, as you call it, arise out of emotional problems and human needs. She is not a dry intellectual. She uses thinking in relation to human problems. It's not going to necessarily produce solutions, but she wants places in which to do that thinking. And she believes increasingly in her life that novels, realist novels, are the best places where people can do thinking about existence. So although she was an extraordinarily intelligent woman, knowing many languages, translating, reviewing, all that intelligence is meant to be in the service of something more important than intelligence. You describe her as a quintessential novelist and as a great transmitter. And I'm just wondering, do you think she really wanted the reader to maybe question their world around them, question their existence, and to maybe look deeply at the world? Like that she set out almost to teach her readers in some way? Or is that too strong? It's not too strong. She wanted the novel not just to be a form of entertainment, but something very serious. On the other hand, she didn't want just to be uh, a teacher in the dullest sort of way, passing on some sort of lessons or messages. I want, if I I could, would it be all right to give you an example about that? So here's an example of somebody, a man called Lydgate, doctor from Middlemarch, who's got a difficult marriage with his beautiful wife, Rosamond, they are not getting on, and they, but he still wants them to carry on, as he says, loving each other. And the secret sentences that he says in his mind that George Eliot picks up and transmits are these. In marriage, the certainty, she will never love me much, is easier to bear than the fear I shall love her no more. In other words, the one thought he's trying to avoid is, I shall love her no more, because that would be the end of everything. So what he will put up with, and only half recognize that he's putting up with it, is the sentence, she will never love me much. Now that's the sort of compromise that George Eliot is interested in. Not the dramatic thing, I won't love her anymore, let's get divorced, I want to kill her. No, it's the gray area, she will never love me much. It's the messy, mundane stuff, isn't it, Philip, that we all have to experience throughout our lives. And it's not necessarily, as you said, the dramatic that she excels in. Why she is, I saying, the great representative novelist is that she's a great representative realist novelist. And so within our ordinary lives, we keep thinking, oh, we'll make do. We're never going to come to much. It's all right. We manage. And of course, that's our outward story. Even the story we tell ourselves in order to cope. But inside, George Eliot knows there is a hidden drama that doesn't look dramatic, but is to do with people's struggling, people's unhappinesses, their lack of vocation, or their thwarted needs. This is about ordinary human secrets, the private things that hurt.
You quote the psychologist James Sully. He was a young attendant at a Sunday afternoon intellectual gathering that George Eliot and yeah. a range of different leftists and radicals used to attend. I think it was called the Priory. Yeah. And he wrote that Eliot had a clairvoyant insight into the mind and character, which enabled her to get at once in spiritual touch with a stranger. Yeah. And she was able to, in some way, tap her speech and how the words that she, she chose. She was very clever in how she reached out to different people in the group. It really shows her extraordinary gift in terms of her psychological capabilities, doesn't it? It does, and it was very important to her that she should do it not only on the page as a novelist, but in her own life, in order to think about people, to listen to people, to imagine what they were really saying. You hear their ordinary script, but the job of the novelist in real life was to hear what was beneath it, to imagine that. And she wanted to be as sympathetic in real life as she was on the page. She knew, however, that come away from the page, and she wouldn't be. That's one of the powerful, painful contradictions for her, that she could write better than she could live. How much of her own personal struggles comes through in the literature? I know that she had a trickyish relationship with her mother, but I'm just wondering, her, very, her early childhood, it wasn't necessarily troubled, but it wasn't very happy either. She loved her father, and he was the great, secure figure for her from her childhood onwards. The relationship with the mother seems more distant, and it was always the case that her relationships with men seemed stronger from that point onwards than her relationships with women. She loved her brother Isaac. Trouble was that though in many ways it was a happy childhood, this was a, a girl of very powerful feelings, uh, very strong thoughts, and increasingly as she grew, she was going to come into conflict with provincial Coventry, provincial Nuneaton, the countryside and towns where she was reared. So her father, a very uh, respectable uh, woodsman and uh, estate manager, provided great moral backbone, would always support her until the point when in the course of her intellectual adventures she wanted to give up on Christianity. And she told her father one day that she didn't want to go to church with him anymore. And he was devastated. Looking back years later, she thought she'd handled it badly. She was so keen on establishing her principles that she'd hurt her father. Her father wasn't reasonable. He seemed to be threatening to, to throw her out. Uh, but she thought, really, she was the more powerful vessel. She was the person who knew more, who should have been able to manage it. And in the end, she did manage it by compromising, by going back to church with her father, not for the sake of a God that she no longer believed in, but for the sake of her father's human feelings. She didn't care too much that it looked as if she was giving in. She knew inside, at a different level, she wasn't. And that was one of the great pains for her, that... As we all know, you can love your father, your mother, your relatives, your friends, but there's always a thought, sometimes a critical thought that cuts across that, and we have to live with that mixture of love and judgment.
I'd like to read you, if, if I may, Sue, just a um, short paragraph, which is from Adam Bede, and is about families and the tensions within them. It's a novel that springs out of her own youthful experience. I'll read it. Family likeness has often a deep sadness in it. Nature, that great tragic dramatist, knits us together by bone and muscle and divides us by the subtler web of our brains, blends yearning and repulsion, and ties us by our heartstrings to the beings that jar us at every movement. We hear a voice with a very cadence of our own uttering thoughts we despise. We see eyes, so like our mother's, averted from us in cold alienation, and our last darling child startles us with the air and gestures of the sister we parted from in bitterness long years ago. The father to whom we owe our best heritage galls us, puts us to shame by his daily errors. The long-lost mother, whose face we begin to see in the glass as our own wrinkles come, once fretted our young souls with our anxious humours and irrational persistence. You see the point? You're tied to them, biologically, physically, also emotionally. And yet at another level, you've outgrown them, you're fed up with them, and you're also conflicted, ashamed of those feelings. And this is done by George Eliot's wonderful writing of sentences that combine two things, the attraction and the repulsion, the love and the critical thought. And it's her job, she believes, to hold those tensions together in her sentences as we have to hold them together in our heads and hearts. And Philip, it's something that we can all relate to, to whatever degree. I'm just wondering, her mother never visited her in boarding school. I know her mum eventually died of breast cancer. But it seemed to have been quite a cold and lonely experience with her mother, was it? Yes, it seems so. Um, There's a great moment in the mill on the floss when Maggie the protagonist who is based on Marianne Evans, who became George Eliot. When Maggie um, is in terrible trouble, social isolation, everybody is fed up with her, and the mother that she's rather despised compared to her father suddenly turns around and says the one sentence that Marianne Evans, that George Eliot never heard in her own life. Maggie Tulliver's mother says to her, in this trouble, you've got a mother. And I think that George Eliot... Marianne Evans, as she was called, never had that sentence. Always seemed without her mother, whether her mother was depressed or poorly, we don't fully know. But she didn't have that. Her brother Isaac was brutally judgmental of her different decisions. They were clearly politically and emotionally and socially such different people. They were wired so differently. But he almost tried to control her, didn't he? And she, at one level, knew that. And, at another level, loved him. It's those levels, the refusal of a simplification that says, my brother is just a bully. She was separated from him for many long years because, in her emotional neediness, the man that she found that she wanted to marry was already married. Isaac was a very conventional man. He couldn't bear it that she was living, inverted commas, in sin with a married man. And so he cut her off. Uh, She had to learn to bear that. 
She suffered from it. She wrote the novel Mill on the Floss out of that pain. And eventually, after George Henry Lewis, her common-law husband, died, she married very late on a much younger man, actually married him, and then, for a wonder, Isaac got back in touch. She could have been bitter, but she was simply, I'm afraid, simply very glad after all that pain, that there was some sort of reunion. She didn't have much of a reunion with her sister Chrissy. I think her brother Isaac banned her older sister from visiting her or writing to her because he didn't approve of her psycho-emotional or psychosexual relationships of sorts. That's right. I mean, uh, um, Marianne Evans um, would have been hurt and angry at that. But you see, George Eliot, who she became would have understood why, with whatever faults in him, Isaac had decided to do that. The portrait of Isaac as a version of Tom Tulliver in Mill on the Floss shows a person who is at once narrow-minded and also wonderfully focused. It's he who can rescue his father from bankruptcy as the woman can't. George Eliot could see all the sides And that um, is an almost unbearable reality for us. We would prefer to have one thought, I hate you, or I don't care anymore. For George Eliot, she knew they were crude reactions and not true to our own inner reality of feeling. I loved reading about uh, Barbara Bodichon, um, Philip. She Mm. really got uh, George Eliot. She recognised her through her characters. She she understood her and was a very good friend to her, wasn't she? Yes, Barbara Bodichon, uh, Barbara Lee Smith, as she was originally called, was a very lively, spirited young woman um, who, uh, like uh, Marian Evans, went through a lot of uh, uh, heartaches uh, in her relationships with men. Um, but she had an enormous amount of courage and independence, and she loved her friend. The sign of that love for Marion Evans, George Eliot, was that when that first novel came out, because it came out under the pseudonym of George Eliot, it was Barbara Bodichon who recognized that it was Marion Evans. Nothing could have pleased the author more than to be known At some level, of course, she used the pseudonym in order not to be known, in order not to be associated with someone who is living um, with a man who is not married, for example, or to avoid the prejudice against women writers. You referenced J.W. Cross, George Eliot's first biographer, and I was surprised by um, how honest and anxious and how despairing George Eliot was of what she thought would be her future. She said to him in in an interview, and it's so, so personal and so honest, the only thing I should ever care much to dwell on will be the absolute despair I suffered from of ever being able to achieve anything. When you think that she is possibly the greatest Victorian writer, it's remarkable how self-critical she was, isn't it? It's remarkable how insecure she was. George Henry Lewis, her common-law husband, had to hide reviews from her, had to ask publishers not to send her any critical remarks at all because she would get disheartened and depressed immediately. Every time she was depressed in the middle of a book, she'd turn back to her notes in her diary about writing the previous book and she began to see she'd felt the same previously. So she just had to get used to the depression, the despair, the self-criticism. But she never was able to get rid of it. 
she, Johnny Cross uh, was the young man that she married many years her junior, after the death of George Henry Lewis, towards the end of her life, needing somebody to look after her, because that's always the key. She needed to be loved. She needed to be able to have somebody to really talk to. Cross was uh, um, like a sort of nephew um, who then looked after her in those uh, later years. He was himself um, uh, depressive um, and at one point said that he found her books melancholy. Instead of thinking, as she might, that this was a sign of his own depression, she was just very, very upset. She was thin-skinned, but she was also very frightened if that's all her novels did. She didn't want to just be a teacher, and she didn't want to just be a pessimist. So although she was dealing with hard and often sad human problems, she wanted her books not to be melancholy. She wanted them to give people... Um, some sort of strength, some sort of belief, some sort of strong emotions uh, in the midst of things. Is Middlemarch her greatest book, do you think? I presume you've read it umpteen times. Umpteen times. I think it is her greatest book. And I remember the first time that I read it when I would be perhaps 16, 17. And what I loved was the way that she was able to put in the background, the context, the unspoken thoughts of every character. And I thought to myself, I can't even do that for myself, but I wish there was somebody who could explain me, put in the faults, but also the mitigations that I'd been known. Of course, you'd be quite frightened of, of anybody knowing you that way, especially as you grew up away from your parents. And perhaps the only, um, is it a person, not really. The only person that you would think traditionally could do that would be God. Well, when I was reading Middlemarch for the first time, um, it was as if George Eliot was a sort of God. And when I finished reading it, I thought, oh, I'm going to be lonely again now. Because while I was reading it, I didn't feel alone. I felt with the characters. I knew what the characters were feeling. I knew that George Eliot knew about them, and there was some sort of community going on there, and I knew that George Eliot would be able, as it were, to explain somebody like me. And as I stopped reading the book, I thought, I'm on my own again now. Speaking of God, how would you describe her relationship, or how would you describe her spiritual framework of sorts? Because she had quite an on-off relationship with God. She produced some tremendous writing, and um, there is so such a moralistic an ethical uh, frame to all her writing. But yeah. it's not straightforward, sure it's not. No, she gave up her belief. She had very strong evangelical beliefs in uh, God as a uh, young woman. Um, she wanted that certainty. She lost that certainty uh, as a result of uh, her thinking and her reading, and as I say, didn't want to go to church anymore with her father. When she turned to writing... It wasn't in some sort of cynical way. This was still, in terms of the experiments of life, attempts to find meaning and purpose. It was a sort of agnostic religious endeavor. God wasn't going to appear in this, but all 
all those religious feelings that she valued, she wanted to retain. I was very interested in what you wrote about Tolstoy. You mentioned that Tolstoy loved Adam Bede. He thought it was just one of the best books that he'd ever yeah. read. Yeah. And it got me thinking, and I'm not sure it's the nicest thing to do. You know, Tolstoy and George Eliot both yeah. are masters of marriage and writing yeah. about the pains and frustrations and distractions within marriage and yeah. the suffering. And I'm just wondering, is it fair to compare them? Can we put them, are, are they like, they're two extraordinary joints of literature. But I'm just yeah. wondering, who do you think writes marriage and its frustrations best? <laughs> the, the great impossible <laughs> question. Maybe we'll, just go, maybe we'll just go for love first and then we'll move on to marriage. It's a, it's a very difficult one, isn't it? It's a very difficult one. Because I spent the weekend trying to think about it and I, ooh, I just, it's, it's hard, isn't it? It's very hard. George, I mean, uh, Tolstoy, uh, I'm thinking here of Anna Karenina, still comes through at the end of that book with Levin as a believer. And there is that strong drive in, in Tolstoy towards um, some sort of religious faith. Um, George Eliot has to be more immersed in the day-to-day. There isn't going to be a religious solution. There's, there's want... no resolve, though, in mm-hmm. George 